Hello again. Welcome to the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. I'm Thomas Valentine. This is the second part of our two-part series featuring the Regional Buddhist Recovery Summit panel, recorded at the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland. Thanks again to everyone who participated and attended. It was a really powerful event. If you want to support the Buddhist Recovery Network and help more summits like this come together, we are currently raising money to be able to host the International Buddhist Recovery Network Summit, happening this upcoming September. Buddhist Recovery Network is a volunteer-run organization. All dana collected goes towards making Buddhist recovery more accessible through events, online dharma teachings, operating the largest Buddhist recovery meeting database online, as well as this podcast. Offer dana by going to BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash donate. years ago, Johan Hari, this, uh, I think, British journalist, came out with a book called Chasing the Scream. And the uh, conclusion of the book, as I understand it, was the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. And I thought I would just open that or offer that. You know, would you tend to agree with that or not? Uh, I'll turn that over to whoever wants to start. (laughs) Yeah, I, I'll just say a word, which is I think that's a lovely thing. He says it in his, his TED Talk as well. Um, and, and, you know, it's very hopeful. Um, and I think what we bring to this um, opportunity, and we're going to talk about that in several questions, but one of the things that we learn in Buddhism is that, that to seek the Dharma um, is to strip away the illusion of separateness, Right. So those of us who are feeling separated and whose whose interactions with drugs and alcohol and behaviors and um, and food and sex and gambling um, made you feel separate, made us feel separate, or made us feel not connected, um, the fact of the matter is we were. And what we can do through recovery programs and um, through the kindness of the words of the Buddha that all sentient beings um, have Buddha nature, um, what we can do is not um, create some sense of connection, um, but to bring mindful awareness to the fact that we are indeed all connected to each other, and that's the only way the world works. Yeah, in the um, work that I do with uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, uh, one of the seminal teachings is that with trauma, the re- trauma isn't the thing that actually happened to us. It's what, it's in a way, it's what we made it mean. It's what, it's, it, I, mean, I had a very big teaching as a young person in my early 20s when a friend of mine, her dog died and she was really distraught. And I was like, get over it, it's just a dog. I was young, I was like 20. It's like, get over it, it's just a dog, you know? And then a few months later, a friend's mother died and I was completely shocked that they were displaying the same level of distress and I got it. And again, coming back to this this teaching with trauma, it isn't 
it isn't the actual thing that happens to you. It's it what it's what happens inside us, what we make it mean, and and that is what is the, is the disconnection. That's where we disconnect, and and often when we have those traumas, when we're young, who did we speak to? Who did we speak to? And many of you will say, well, there was nobody to speak to. But then there was a disconnection, but we did speak to somebody. We spoke to ourselves and started blaming ourselves and beating ourselves up. So definitely for me, the healing for addiction, emotional trauma is about this uh, connection and not just connection to ourselves, as Stephen said, the, the connection to the rest of the world, because I know with my disease, I was separate. I was isolated. We know that part of, you know, if we call it the disease, disease or whatever the malady is, that human malady, we isolate. And that is disconnection. When we become separate and other, that is the, that separate and other causes wars. Separate and other causes racism. Separate and other causes sexism. Separate and other causes addiction. So yes, it is about disconnection for me. I think that's the genius of the recovery programs, really, is that it's finding the community, right? I mean, clearly, I mean, if I didn't do my fourth step until I was 11 years sober, my sponsor wasn't having much of an impact on me. But, um, but, <laughs> but um, the community did. The community was, you know, that helped. Those people held my hand. Those people taught me what to do on a Saturday night when I wasn't like messed up. You know. Those people taught me how to have a have an argument and learn how to get back together and reconnect, you know, and that's, you know, in Refuge we talk about the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, and I would say the greatest of those is Sangha, you know, and, and, and that whole spirit of coming together to be with your essentially chosen family that you're, you're marching through this with is... Uh, it's tremendous, and it gets ugly, and it becomes beautiful, and I loved the comment earlier about chaos, you know, all is, all is chaos, and that's okay, um, and how, how people, uh, you know, I mean, I was a blackout drinker for 17 years, right, you know, so, like, I didn't know how to be a grown-up. It was the community that taught me how to be a grown-up, and we have that, and that maybe more than anything, is what unifies the different programs. It's really, um, when I think about, you know, the connection, I think of, you know, uh, the bridging. I mean, just to speak from my own experience of really bridging uh, indigenous perspective, wisdom, along with um, Buddhism. And for me, Buddhism was the container, and um, the indigenous was the unseen that was riding over the container. So in many ways, when I think of displacement of self, it's really an external as well as an internal. It's really seen and unseen. So our relationship with, the, um, with nature, 
for example, from an indigenous perspective, we believe um, that we've been disconnected from our relationship to nature and that we spent most of our time mastering nature, controlling nature, and we've lost ourselves with the connection with the natural elements of the world around us and nature itself. And um, a lot of what I teach is really the building the relationship with nature, spending time in nature, going an hour a day in nature, um, and really just, you know, meditation is, yes, it's dharmic, but from an indigenous perspective, it's been around, we just use it as a practice of silence in nature. We have another word for it, another meaning of it. And so when we go up in a hill, whether it's a vision quest or we're taken with our community and we're going through rites, rituals, and ceremony, because you see, ceremony symbolizes change. And when one is suffering, we're all suffering. And right now within my own community, there's an epidemic of, there is a crisis of you know, substance and alcoholism and suicide and violence. And um, it's hard not to recover oneself without recovering the collective in general. So we have to look at our relationship with the environment. You know, so what institutions are uh, perpetuating oppression in a particular group? I only speak from indigenous perspective in this country. Um, so for myself and what my elders have taught me is that the self, the collective oppression impacts the self-oppression, which impacts a depression intergenerationally, which is the trauma that Valerie um, speaks to, that Villa Massar speaks to, and that is not said a lot in recovery. So from, you know, the, from working with indigenous people looking for, you know, coming back to self, coming back to ritual and ceremony, as well as the principles and tenets of um, helping finding healing again, is that connection with nature that connection with community, and also waking up to the reality that we're still oppressed in a system that further oppresses us collectively. And now that it's a whole issue in our country, it's not just Native people, you know, it's a real issue, our, our displacement with Mother Earth, you know, so, um, um, you know, so, Recovery, in this sense, is just no longer about substance abuse or use. It's really an overall system um, realization and that the external work is also your internal work of recovering yourself. Or re I would like to use the word reclaim self. I don't use recovery, reclaim self is really about the reclaiming one's community and one's belief and one's relationship with nature again and coming back to a place that resides in ourselves and not only in ourselves but externally as well as a community. And so um, there's a lot I can say because, you know, I'll lastly finally say that um, 
you know, you can't, you know, the, re, the inner and the outer work is not only environmental, but you also look at cultural, then you look at subcultural oppression, then you look at the developmental, and you look at the spiritual development, as, as well as the predisposition biologically, because we also have diabetes, we also have obesity, we also have, I mean, all of those quadrants that Ken Wilber has eloquently said um, in his model, um, all of those quadrants really addresses the wholeness of a person. So the question is, how do we come back into our whole self? And the whole self is also the external to the world around us, seen and unseen. Just, um, just listening to you, Carol, I mean, you've been one of my teachers, as I said, when you came in, uh, teaching you gave me the last time we talked together and uh, I listening to you just felt the the pain to just be in touch with the the pain and sadness because you know my people you know same as African-American African-British African-Canadian that's been a disconnection a disconnection from our lands a disconnection from our languages it's like my name is Valerie Mason John. I mean, what African name is that? Do you know what I mean? It's like I, my first job. I well, actually, if one my second job, I I was a journalist, an international correspondent, and you could see the look of horror when I walked through the door because Valerie Mason John was not this dark-skinned African, and. Uh, yeah, and when I, you know, when we look at who, who are the most incarcerated peoples in this world, yeah, indigenous, Hispanic, African descent all over, you know, and who are the most incarcerated around addiction, yeah, again, indigenous, Hispanic, African descent, and if I... For me, if I was to leave a legacy, I really want to see our people coming through the doors of recovery. And what is it going to take for our people to come through the doors of recovery? Because it's, it's endemic, but yet we're not coming through the doors of recovery. And it's because of the things that you have just been saying, because that's just not included in the programs. A friend of mine is a judge in Canada and she she became a judge a couple of years ago and when she went to judge school, she came back and said that the most, I'm sorry Kevin because it's about stats, but she, she said they taught them that the most successful recovery program which has the highest success of when they're tracking people are the indigenous ones because it includes the spirituality it includes coming back to the nature it wasn't 12 step program she was and she was in a, she's in a 12 step program so she was blown away by this but that's what they were saying was were the most successful i'm not going to address these 
I, I love what you guys are saying, so thank you. And it's not, not something I can add to. I, I wanted to go back to the word connection, though, and this statement, which uh, I'm wary of sort of simplistic statements like this, you know, the opposite of addiction is not whatever, not sobriety, but connection. And, uh, but, but I think it's, it's pointing to something really important. And, and I think, that, but I think we have to go deeper into what connection is about, what connection means, because, you know, I, I have, I've had lots of connections that were not healthy and I was very, very connected, you know, uh, so that's not enough. The what and going into a meeting and I connect, you know, when I went to AA and I connected at least I mentally in my head. I didn't necessarily make you know relationships right away, but I connected because I related to people what they were saying and that it was similar to my experience. So that was helpful, but that didn't really start to solve the problem to me. It was, in order to truly connect, I have to be open. I have to be willing to uh, expose myself. And that's where I think the work really starts to happen. That the, and, and that's, the beginning of the 12 steps is the beginning of Buddhism is recognizing. So before I can expose myself, I have to know myself. And to know myself means I must feel myself, which means I have to know my suffering, which is the first noble truth. I have to see and understand and experience my own suffering. And I don't want to do that, which is why I'm an addict, you know, which at least supported my addiction, let's say, was a motivation behind it. So, excuse me, blowing into the microphone. So, I can't just kind of go, oh, I'm going to go and connect with people. It's like, I, there's a bunch of stuff I have to do before actual connection is going to happen. I have to feel my suffering. I have to see it. And then I have to be willing to expose it and share it. And those are two things I don't want to do. You know, those are two difficult things in and of themselves. You know, there's the suffering, and then there's the feeling the suffering, and then there's the admitting the suffering, and all of those are difficult. So all of those are really, I think, preconditions to actually connecting and making meaningful connection with people so that they're seeing me and I am seeing them. Uh, you know, kind of going back to something that we went over a little bit this morning, at least I think we touched on, uh, that, you know, when you walk into a spiritual center like EBMC or Spirit Rock or Shambhala or the Zen Center, if you're going in there to get enlightened, <laughs> you don't want to show people that you're not enlightened. You know, you want to look good. And in the Buddhist world, I think there's a lot of uh, falsity around, you know, really... How, where where we're at and that's why so many of us were able to hide out 
and be Buddhists where we were still using because we weren't exposing ourselves because we weren't really feeling our pain and we weren't exposing our pain, you know, so we, so we weren't really connecting, you know, we might've like been with the Sangha and meditated and chanted and, you know, maybe even gone out to dinner with people, but we didn't really know, they didn't really know us and we didn't let ourselves be known. So, so the, this idea that the opposite of rec- of addiction is connection, I think it's got to be, we have to drill that down a bit for it to really be meaningful uh, and to have, the, to have that connection really be transformative. And yeah, ultimately it is. I mean, what, what is the practice in the 12-step world? Well, you have the 12 steps and you can work the steps or not work the steps, as people have said, but if you're part of it, you go to meetings, right? And, and it's the same thing where all seeing in all these different programs that that yeah that the the community the sangha uh, you know Alan Marlat who started mindfulness based relapse prevention said um, you know we were talking once in, in in his program which was not. He wasn't into the 12 steps at all, but he said, well, when people finish our program, we tell them to go to AA because then they'll get social support. And I just had to kind of laugh because he said social support is actually our research shows (laughs) that social support is, you know, a key factor in in maintaining uh, your recovery or whatever, avoiding relapse. So, yeah, connection. But but. uh, how do you make that connection happen? So. I mean, you're talking about the spiritual bypassing that we can so easily do. And one of the things that I like to remind people of is the allegory of the, uh, of the prince's enlightenment. Because when the prince sat and vowed not to move from that spot, the prince didn't vow to find enlightenment. But yet, out there in the world, that's what we're looking for. We want enlightenment. We want happiness. That's not what the prince vowed. The prince vowed to find an end of suffering. Very different. Very subtle shift. (laughs) And to find an end of suffering, we have to connect to the suffering. And we know that when the prince sat, we think we're going to sit and it's going to be all blissful. Why do we think that? Yeah, if you, if you look at that allegory, that story, the prince was assailed by every negative mental state that you could imagine. But yet we think we can escape it. Yeah. But that's the place we have to connect. And, you know, I think it's, um, those are really important concepts and they're real and we must know our, our suffering and connect with it. But, you know, the Buddha came to teach two things, suffering and the into suffering. And so you're taking us in the right direction. I've stood at the doors of many, um, mindfulness programs and recovery programs and Zen programs and watched people flee. Um, um, because all we talked about was the suffering and we talked about, I've been deeply involved in this breakfast for 28 years and now I fully embrace how much I'm suffering. Suffering, and newcomers come in and think, well, hell, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, 
And so I think that it's important for us when we do that to say, you know, that was the Buddhist teaching that there is, um, you know, a, a time when um, there is an end to suffering and there's the way to get there and you have to do the work, all of which we've, just, we've described. But I also think it's important for us to say to each other um, when we're having those moments and those days and those years um, to say to each other that there can be an end to this. Um, and that the end is to do the work, um, compassion work with self and others, and and to do the work in community that allows you to have a different relationship first with yourself, then with others, and then with whatever um, uh, things you, in which you find healing and health, um, because those will change. Um, but I do think it's just vitally important that whenever we focus for the first 45 minutes on suffering, um, that we at least say that the Buddha said there were two things. Yeah. The end to suffering is the second one. Uh, great, thanks. I think, uh, I, Kevin, I think the Buddhist version would be uh, wise connection, <laughs> which uh, Johan Hari forgot to say that part. <laughs> um, so we'll move on to another question before we, we'll, we'll open it up to the audience soon here for questions. Uh, I'm skipping around a little bit. Uh, I'd like to hear the panel talk about this question. Um, I know refuge recovery is offered in some local treatment centers, uh, including MPI in downtown Oakland. I'm just wondering if uh, the question I wrote was, should we be building more Buddhist or mindful recovery centers or trying to get Buddhist recovery into more treatment facilities, what are the hurdles, uh, what have people learned that have done some of that work? Uh, yeah, we have many, actually we have many meetings right now that are based at treatment centers. Um, uh, and um, I mean, we certainly don't want to get into the business of operating a treatment center ourselves within refuge. Uh, um, uh, I guess that falls under the category of uh, some other folks been there, done that. And um, on um, on the other hand, I I certainly I like seeing the meetings that are popping up in the treatment centers. I think it's. It's a great opportunity for folks to have something other than 12-step, which is usually, I think, what, what folks get sort of engineered towards. Um, I think the, the challenge is going to be that um, one person can end up dominating the meeting um, in terms of the facilitation of the meeting. One person can end up being secretary for like three years because like I brought this meeting to the treatment center or, you know, and they sort of take on a, uh, and so I'm not talking about meetings that just happen to use a treatment center location. All right. This is like, we explicitly brought a meeting to the treatment center and we offer it once a week. And so then it becomes way more personality and refuge is deliberately peer-led, and so then it's a matter of making sure that uh, shared responsibility is happening. I mean, we have this issue anyway in refuge that, you know, we have folks that are like sort of personifying refuge right now. It's like part of the growing pains of a new organization, I think. Um, but I think the 
it's a place that we like to see. We like to see these meetings in the treatment centers, and we want to see that continue. We want to grow that, um, and we want to make sure that that stays lively and that stays it, it stays peer led. And so that's probably the that's the biggest challenge. Yeah. So uh, there are. Um eight-step meetings in treatment centers. I don't know how many. Often I go somewhere and people say, oh, yeah, we're having meetings in our treatment centers. But one of the challenges that uh, I've come across is, is that often I have people say, we love the book, we love the approach, but we can't take it in to work because it's got the word Buddhism in it. And so I've just really come to a point that I am working on a new book when I give myself the time, which will, uh, I suppose, as, as John says, John Kabat-Zinn is mainstream in the Dharma, mainstreaming mindfulness just so it's just more accessible. So for me, there has been a, a hurdle. But in saying that, I think it's, it's really important uh, that there are alternatives and there are people out there looking for alternatives. And I think, you know, if people feel inspired to set up a treatment center for Buddhist recovery, I think, hey, go go ahead, you know? I mean, it's not where I'm, I'm at. In fact, I do find the whole thing, I know rehabs do a lot of good work, but, you know, when I look at how much money it costs to go to one of those rehabs, it just makes me throw up and think, well, why are people doing rehabs? Are they doing it for the money or, or doing it, you know, for the recovery of people? But yeah, why not? To Yes, to, to both. I think it's really important to complement the 12-step recovery approach. Yeah, I think a good Buddhist answer to the question is both, that yes to both. Um, because I think one of the things that happens is we, we do go um, for, uh, not doing it now, but for a couple of years we did a program in a recovery center, meditation and recovery did, and it went very, uh, worked very effectively, and, um, but it's a lot of work. Um, and, you, you know, getting people to be there and, as you say, not have it take on a sort of an institutional feel. Um, but the other thing is I think we need to have everybody that spoke this morning and, and speaking in the smaller groups talked about what it was like to come in here today and be in a room full of people who are sharing this path um, and how wonderful that is. At, at San Francisco Zen Center, we get about 70 people on a Monday night and at Hartford Street, about 25 people on a Friday night. So over 100 people a week are coming. And what people say routinely is it's so nice. They all participate in some sort of other recovery thing, by and large, because um, we stress that that comes, that comes first. Um, but to be in a location where you can bring your spirituality, um, whether it's Buddhism or um, some uh, mindfulness or you're just questioning and you know that you want something that allows you to get quiet for 20 minutes or, or for a practice. Um, but to be able to come and talk about those things and study those things. Um, so I think the idea of having places where people know they can go and it's, and it's not a, a recovery meeting per se, 
um, but it's a place where both things are happening or a combination of newer versions of those things um, because it just gives people a destination for safety. Thank you. Um, one of the things that's been going on here for the last few years, I would say maybe five years, is that it's been very difficult to retain people to show up to have these meetings here. And um, one is the big debate, even we just spoke about it, is teacher-led versus peer-led. Teacher-led wasn't so successful because it, you know, things happen, teachers are busy. So then we thought peer-led, and then peer-led is a little bit more complicated because there's a commitment. And um, I'm only speaking to the history. I know now you are working on it now. Um, and one of the things I found um, teaching a lot in this community is that, you know, accessibility of language. Because there, you know, one thing that this is not just a Buddhist center. We honor different spiritual practices here. And we also accept different teachers from different lineages, but also indigenous lineage versus, you know, different belief systems that are allowed to be here. And, um, and also, when you teach here, there's always a person of color with a white teacher. It's not a white teacher-led only. So um, that's pretty profound for this community, <laughs> I just have to say, and very empowering. And at the same time, there's divide around um, recoveries taken by white sanghas, you know? white participants. So then our people of color start, um, attendance starts dropping down. So, you know, and infinity groups are vital right now because of the state of our country, our communities, and what we are going through. And so um, I think that, you know, these are big questions that I myself would love to have further dialogue with that pertains to EBMC around how to somehow, um, you know, make it more accessible, but in a way that, um, you know, that there is, you know, the majority of people here are people of color that come here and uh, LGBTQI community. And so um, it is, you know, it's a big issue and I'm glad that we're bringing it up, but I myself as one who bridges both and teaches both, um, I use accessible language of mindfulness because of that. It just seems like a lot more people show up and they can work with the language of mindfulness versus um, Buddhism. That's a whole other can of worms, isn't it? Because, you know, if you, if you think about um, the teachers from the states in England who went out to India, Burma, and Thailand, who were they? And so, of course, you know, no blame, but you're going to bring it back within your own culture. So there's something about making the Dharma, making mindfulness culturally specific. And that's what I feel my, my work is, is to begin to make it culturally specific because, yeah, so I'll just end it there. Time to the audience, maybe. 
what does culturally specific mean? For me, what culturally specific means is that how can I make mindfulness culturally specific to my black communities so it's a language that they understand, yeah, so that I'm not just speaking in the uh, white intellectual language that there is a language. You know, when I'm uh, around black people, even if it's African-American or black British, I speak differently. My whole my whole body changes, you know. And if I spoke like that to white people, they'd say, you're being aggressive, man. It's like <laughs> they get a bit digi, as we say, get a bit digi, a bit digital, you know. So there is a whole, there is a whole way of, of communicating, you know, that makes it, that's, because communication can make a disconnection. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate this conversation a lot. Uh, I mean, for the most part, refuge is white AF, right? I mean, <laughs> and, um, and also uh, refuge was born very much in a kind of a bro culture kind of way, right? And so um, I, we have kind of, we have both things going on. Um, I was at a I was at a regional conference in uh, New England uh, uh, in the fall, and this uh, woman who's of Latina descent gets up and she says, "Well, I'm here speaking because they couldn't find anybody else that was of color, so I'm going to do it." And I mean, we all kind of laughed because we all recognized ourselves, right? It was like, yeah, because refuge is white AF. And so we have, I think, the two issues going on right now in Refuge. I mean, we certainly have, a, I think, a pretty queer-friendly um, kind of vibe happening for the most part. But we are, um, you know, we're, uh, we're uh, trying to figure out how to address the, um, the bro culture piece, you know, and what that looks like, which is huge for our community. And also, how do we uh, connect with... Um, with different communities. And it's like a bunch of white people trying to figure out how to connect with the other communities. And that's not a really a good look, frankly. You know, it's like, because it's like a whole bunch of like well-intended white liberal people bumbling around being kind of stupid, you know? And so that's, I think, is this being recorded? <laughs> I think that's kind of where we are today. I mean, we really have a lot of work in this one, and um, we gotta we gotta turn to people who, uh, you know, like some of the people on this panel that can help us and be provide guidance to us. You know, because we don't know really what we're doing on that front. So. I mean, the sexism and the misogyny that we see in Refuge, like, we're working on that, okay? We can do that. The other piece, very different, very complex, need help. So, my name is Augusta. <clears throat> I had a quick question for Vimla Sara and then maybe a response to Jean. When you use the words culturally specific, is that specifically different from culturally relevant or culturally like, relatable? Is it different? Okay, thank you. 
I think it felt really similar to what you said. So I love that there were specific words and then the exact ask to hear it. And I'm, it, it, it's new language for me. And it sounded, the way you define it seems similar to the way that I hold culturally relevant. And what the culture is that one is trying to communicate with will vary, right? And I don't know that it's any different from culturally specific, but it might be. So I was curious. I found myself inspired to speak as a white person to what I heard Jean saying, and I've had the opportunity to go through a number of trainings, and I would benefit going, from going through a ton more. But there are a number of trainings that are being offered to help support white people in waking up to what it means to be white. Part of the privilege of being white is that it's the normal in this country that we've come to and destroyed, right? Like, that's a big problem. And you have a lot of privilege if you look like I do and you walk around in the United States of America. And it's easy to not recognize that because you're just in it. You don't see, like, oh, Band-Aids, skin-colored Band-Aids. They're this skin color. It's not the only skin color. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. Or it used to be that the, the crayon that kind of looked like this was called skin. I mean, it's, there's so many things. There's, um, you might have noticed for yourself that when there's a little bit of stress, a memory kind of goes the opposite direction. And so I'm not remembering her name right now, but there was a, a piece written many years ago by a woman who had been quite involved in recognizing the privilege of men and the position that she sat in as a woman. She was a white woman, and it took her a while to recognize the privilege that she sat in as a woman. And she wrote a very short essay about the invisible backpack of privilege that she had because she was white. And it's a really quick read, and it's a great, great eye-opener. And then there's a program that happens here called White Awakening in Sangha, which is a multi-session course, which I think many people have benefited from. There's a program that's available online, which is a curriculum developed out of Insight Washington, D.C., in collaboration with jo Joanna Macy's community. And then there's a program that was developed out of CDL5, the Community Dharma Leaders Training at Spirit Rock, which is specifically for white people to wake up to their whiteness and come to understand that privilege more. And I think that doing that work is a great step forward. It doesn't solve anything because the work is lifelong and that going through one of those courses helps us to be more aware and put our foot in our mouth maybe a little less frequently or at least notice that we've put our foot in our mouth, right? I'm smiling because a great example for me around privilege, I was teaching in New England and I was teaching with a co-teaching with a white teacher and we went for a walk and a police car came by and I stopped and she carried on walking. Yeah. Yeah. Great, now I think it's time to open it up for questions from you all, the audience. So we have. Um, I didn't really have a question as much as um, just kind of response to some, something that was kind of just brought up. Um, I come to this sangha, uh, not this, I'm sorry, to the meditation center for relatively frequently. Um, before that, I lived in Brooklyn and I would do like Dharma punks and I go to Insight. So I had some like meditation chats before that, but I always 
hated med- going to meditation centers because they are so white and unwelcoming, generally speaking. Um, and no one ever looked like me in there. And it was like, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Bring the rest of people who look like you so we can feel good about our meditation center. Um, <clears throat> and I really don't come to this meditation center except on Thursdays when there are, it's a people of color, Sangha, to the point where I come sometimes and I'm like, like today where I came and I was like, oh, there are white people here. Oh, right, that happens here. Oh, I forgot the white people come here. Um, and I think that's related to, for me, um, the way that I feel in meetings, in AA meetings, and in almost all recovery spaces, it's one of the things that's really snatched away my accessibility to those spaces because I don't have people um, who, um, me talking about the threats to my sobriety, which include racism, includes these things that I experience as a marginalized person, People find them upsetting for me to bring up um, because they don't have that experience. And um, it just brought up a lot of thoughts about um, just in terms of I know that um, you were speaking about um, the vulnerability it takes to begin healing. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot. And I think that um, it's something that... um, I think that it's hard, even today I had a lot of feelings about being in this recovery space with so many white people uh, because it feels not that safe to me to be vulnerable, um, uh, even if we're all in recovery. Um, there are things, obstacles for me uh, as a black person um, that are not present for people who are white people. The word addict is a really hard word for me to hear growing up here in the United States in the 80s and 90s and having people, whether you're used or not, if you're black, you're a site of addiction, period. People just assume that you are some kind of like deviant who, you know what I mean? I use that word like it's not my word, but, um, and just, it's, you, the conversation was just bringing up a lot about um, accessibility just in terms of class and stuff too, but um, the first like 48 hours I was sober, like I came here for free because I had no money to Shahara's retreat she had and it meant everything to me to see Shahara leading that retreat um and to sorry I feel like my thoughts are all over the place I tried to write something down before I started talking but um I guess just the thing of safety and that people everyone needs safety to be able to feel vulnerable to talk about what's really to be able to connect with people and I think if you're white and you're in recovery you don't really realize like how much how much goes into you feeling comfortable like AA meetings are going to be filled with you mostly and then some people who aren't white and um, you don't really get how uh, unfortunate that is um, maybe and um, I think the whole thing of like then having white people in recovery spaces try to like reach out to me to be like help me understand I'm like no you help yourself like I don't I don't feel it's the job of black people or people of color or marginalized people to help other people figure out whatever the hell they need to do to make um recovery spaces safe or whatever space safe like you figure it out um figure it out for yourself like I have enough stuff going on for me 
to then have to try and think about. And I think with meditation practices in general, particularly meditation as it's relates to uh, recovery, um, because I can't, I don't really use AA. It's hard for me. Um, you know, it's makes me think about just like kind of, I guess the colonization of healing in the sense that like the way that I have to get to some healing for my recovery, I've got to go into this like white space with white teachers who got it from people of color other places and then brought it and how I feel so unwelcomed, not because anyone is saying you are not welcome, but because everyone in here is fucking white and um, not realizing how they kind of make things unwelcoming by being like, teach us um, how to make it cool for you. And I'm like, um, so yeah, sorry. I just I just had a bunch of thoughts about that and, and just the accessibility of healing and, and the need for people to feel really safe so that they can and that um, so often in recovery spaces, I feel like white people's, white people are centered um, either because they're the most people in the room or I don't know. Um, but that needs to, that really needs to change so that people feel comfortable even coming into the rooms. Like I make myself do it, but I don't like it. And it doesn't, I really don't get anything out of AA when I do go because I don't feel safe talking about the things that are hindrances to me in my recovery around white people. And I don't want to deal with their feelings about me talking about racism or about me talking about how like some person was killed and people kept showing to me on the fucking news and it made me want to drink. <laughs> and now, you know, we have to talk about, I don't know. Anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you. I appreciate it. Mm. I just want to say... I'm sorry, also, too, if it's okay if no white people respond to what I just said. Okay. <laughs> I just want to just say thank you and just thank you for taking your space and place here and your courage and you helped me to be here. Yeah, you've been here all day and I've, you know, I've seen you and you helped me to be here. And um, what I want to say to you is, is that you and I have to be those people to make those changes. I actually, I was approached by Holly who set up hip sobriety. And I was thinking, now I ain't gonna do that for you. But I thought, no, I have to and I hold space for black women for hip sobriety. I don't run my program. And it's for women of color, so I have Hispanic, Asian, African descent, indigenous, and it's beautiful. And I think that what we have to be doing is like, we can set up a 12-step meeting just for people of color. We can set up an eight-step recovery meeting just for people of color. And we can set up a refuge recovery meeting just for people of color. And I think that has to be the way. When I think about, you know, I grew up in England and, you know, in those days, the, it was like, yeah, we had to have our people of color spaces, those separate spaces. And that's what we need to be doing and to take that right. Nobody's stopping us. Those meetings are there 
you know, and it, it takes a lot because we have to be the one to do it, but we are, something is changing. And for me, it is really important to have those spaces. But I also know, cause I'm like, when somebody comes into my Buddhist center and it's a person of color, I'm like this. I'm like, and I have to remember like some people, some people of color, they don't want to be in a people of color space because of the mess up and a mashup. Because I had a mess up and mashup. Once upon a time, I felt more comfortable just being in a white space because I grew up with white people. I was too scared to be in a space with people of color. So I have to assume. So also for you white people, not to just assume when a person of color comes in that they need to be with people of color, right? Because <laughs> they may not, you know, you just don't know what's going on for them. But just really um, coming back to that, um, just uh, again, just touching into that sadness and touching into the strength and the, you know, to, to be able to just say what you've said in this space took, I know how much courage and strength that it took to say this. And I can hear the tears behind what you said. Yeah. And I'm there for you. So just make sure that you don't leave without not speaking to me. Because that's easy to do. And we're, we're in this room. There's Carol here as well. There's some of us. There's some of the men. There's some of us here in this room. And let's like just perhaps say go into the small room at the end and just connect those of us who identify as people of color. I'm inviting you to go into that small room at the end of this session and for us to have a powwow. Okay. Um, I'm really grateful that the topic came up, um, this topic came up amongst the panelists and I've changed my question a little bit because I, I feel like, so, I have a request of any of you that are in the leadership or the writing position um, who haven't spoken to this yet to, I was going to ask you, ask you to speak of it now, but to please leave with a commitment to um, at your 12-step meetings and your books and your wherever you speak that racial justice is mentioned and that you share your commitment to that or you, if you don't have a commitment, make one and I mean it should be one of the steps um, to unlearn racism and unlearn this way that we're stigmatizing people that harms us and harms other people. Um, and it's only going to help anyone's recovery to work on this particular issue of racial justice and not just focus, focus on gender or class, but that racial justice is an intersection that will provide a relief of suffering to many people. So please, thank you. I want to say something about the system we live in, because we live in a system, an economic societal system, that's based on centering the poison of greed. We live under capitalism, and capitalism grew off of the backs of black slaves, off of the backs of killing of native people in North and South America. And if we don't start naming that we, you know, people said you couldn't heal unless a whole family healed. We can't really heal unless this whole society heals. 
and we live in that. And what, you know, and I've sometimes joked and said, all right, capitalism is the addict, and the attempt to overthrow capitalism and communism was like the co-addict, you know, and sometimes people had a harder time with their controlling parent than they did with the addict parent. I'm using the words addict, but um, what would recovery look like? What would a society in recovery look like? Just to start envisioning that. And then I just want to say another thing, because when people list all the oppressions, they always forget one. And one of them, and, and, and this center has been a leader in, in access. And, and so I'm just going to ask some of you who aren't in this session to not use the word sit for meditate, because some people can't sit. They have to lie down or stand. And when that's used, it's like what they're doing is lesser. And that's just one, one piece of, of um, inclusion that, that people who are differently abled um, get included. Thank you. Just take a pause, because it's, it's uncomfortable, and some of us might be thinking, oh, God, it's getting off the point of recovery. Why are we talking about this, blah, blah, blah. And that's just moving away from the discomfort. So just let's just take a pause and be kind to ourselves. It's like this is to be kind to ourselves. Just take that pause to just connect and just allow the seat to support you. And perhaps we could use the Quaker tradition of speaking out of the silence. So when somebody is ready to speak, raise your hand and Walt will take the microphone to you. So um, this is George. I'm holding the bike back here. Um, Thank you to everyone who's spoke so far this afternoon. Um, there's a few things that um, kind of came up for me hearing everyone's share um, based on my own personal experience. Um, first of all, just the idea of, um, you know, I'm a, I was born in Nicaragua. I, you know, came to this country when I was 10, grew up in poverty. You know, uh, hanged around bad um, uh, or questionable people throughout my youth, <laughs> and um, and it was all because of the trauma that I experienced when I was, um, you know, having to leave my country of origin. And my first memory is that of having to throw myself on the floor at the age of four and a half as bullets were being pepper sprayed at my home in Nicaragua as the war, civil war was taken off, you know, was taking, taken off. And so, you know, assimilating in this country and all this stuff and all that, just keep adding to the, the bag of experiences that I had. 
that being said, um, you know, when I entered the very white Shambhala Center of Los Angeles, um, as we say in the 12 steps, you know, um, I was given the gift of desperation. My suffering, my personal suffering, how I was treating myself way surpassed any biases that I had towards how I was going to relate to others, you know, and it was this experience that I had of just like, just throw yourself into this because you have no other choice. That was my experience. Um, years later, as, um, as I was inspired to teach others um, in similar situations, um, I went out into the community and I was trying to get my center to be like, you know, where there was all this talk about meditation set, you know, groups and speaking Spanish and all this stuff, you know, how can we be in the middle of Eagle Rock and not have a Spanish, um, group and, and, and all kinds of things came up and similar, you know, these conversations that I think are often at other centers as well, was taking place with us. And in the effort that we took at that time, for what it's worth, um, I found my ego deflated very quickly when realized that the community didn't need me to teach them how to meditate. The community was doing just fine. <laughs> and realizing that as a person of color, being a Buddhist, being on this path of meditation, that in itself was a privilege. And so then this opens the door as we continue, because really what this really speaks to me is what does it mean to be on a path, spiritual path? What is this, what is this telling me? You know, because no matter, I'm doing something, I'm trying to achieve something, I'm trying to learn something, and then, then the phenomenal world gets me feedback. It lets me know, you know, what it thinks about my plans. And then this opens the door towards conceptual reality versus what's really happening. And as an addict, and I identify as an addict, because um, as I say at meetings, I say I'm an addict, but my, my, the addict that I'm, the way I, dis, the way I relate to that word doesn't define me the way my higher power does. My higher power in that sense for me is basic goodness, Buddha nature, bodhicitta, wisdom and compassion, these things, these words that are pointing, they're not the truth. They're pointing towards some truth that I get to relate to within my own experience. As I lean in towards realizing that I, this absolute and relative existence that I'm in, at some point I have to even if it's just for one second, let go of my conceptual idea of what reality is all about. I have to put my trust 
in that divine openness and realize that I am worthy of that. From that, and only then can I truly help others. And so this spiritual path for me has really been about the influence of the steps and everything that's kind of been talked about in the panel. I mean, really, closing up with this, is like that the body influences my spiritual path way more than my thinking does. My thinking has a lot of catching up to do. My body, in my relationship to my body, has way more insight. Thank you. There's something that um, is arising for me right now. And uh, I led a day for 30 people of color yesterday on the theme of what does race, sexuality, and gender have to do with non-self. And something became just really clear to me with that there is there well there's two things that I want I, I want to say the, f the first thing is is that um, our the the person of color identity has been so fractured that we have to heal those identities in our spaces and when we go into a predominant white space, especially in a Dharma space, white people aren't aware of this, but for us to be there, we have to let go of black self. What would it mean for you to let go of white self? Some of you most probably haven't even thought of it. And if you had to let go of white self, there would be a real kind of struggle and tension. And before one, can even begin to look at letting go of black self, looking at that illusion, one has to relate to it and connect to it and really reclaim this black self. So in a way, just that it was just so interesting because I was doing inquiry with some people and it would be like, yes, this first trauma was here when I experienced the race. But I, because I was another person of color, would know, well, if that trauma was at grade six, then it was something that you experienced before then, something which is reinforcing that trauma around the issues of race. So what I want to say is that actually we, there is so much healing that we have to do around our identities. I hated the color of my skin, okay? Right? And why did I hate the color of our skin, my skin? I love the color. I would go out in the sun, but in many communities, whether we're Hispanic, in indigenous, African descent, don't go out in the sun because you'll get too black. Yeah, but yet you white people will go in the sun to try and get the color of us. Do you know what I mean? There is so much. So this thing of like, that's the, 
what does it mean to let go of white self? The fact that I am a senior teacher in my lineage, I had to do work around loosening my attachment to this black self. Otherwise, I could never have been in that context, which is why it took me a lot longer to go for refuge. Yeah. So it's just that something in what George was saying and just in the context, I just needed to name that. You know, what does it mean to let go of male self? Yeah. 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 Okay, I'll, I've said enough. Yeah. Hi, I'm Carol. Hi. I was, um, thank you everyone for what you've said and what I'm learning. One of the things that when we were talking about community and um, uh, about 20 years in my home group in AA, that's where I got started. And the two couple things that came up for me that were um, so sweet and a reflection of community and action um, over my tenure there. And one was early on, we had this um, tradition of the women, after the Saturday morning meeting, say, any of the women who want to go to breakfast, um, we're going to go over to gyms. And so it was always, it was, you never knew how many, sometimes small, sometimes a dozen, but it was very open and it was extended to all, it was the women, so it was good. And then you'd just talk recovery. And newcomers felt really welcome. So it was just, it was like the meeting after the meeting. And another really wonderful memory I have um, was when I was moving. And I put the word out that I needed help. I'd been in this place for 20 years, and I'd cleared out, but I had a lot of stuff. And then I, um, that day, 12 cars showed up. There weren't any big cars, but 12 cars showed up in pickups. And they moved me so quick I couldn't order pizza. I mean, it was just like all of a sudden I was there in the new space. And to me, community is um, definitely support around our addiction and our recovery, but it's also that kindness, that stepping forward in um, generosity of some kind of action. So those were just two that never left my memory. And um, the other thing that I love that I heard early on is always just welcome people in your meeting. You know, our, the meeting I go to is primarily white, but not all white by any means. And it's just that one-on-one -on -one connection of, of simple welcome, you know, or if you see someone again, it's good to see you, or thank you for what you shared about that. So anyway, thank you all. Hello, I'm Co, alcoholic. Um, I, it, I thought of something that I've been wanting to hear more about or hear what people think about. I think it was the Me Too movement that, that I, around which I first heard about it, and it was about doing something like reconciliation 
you know, because this being kind to one another and, you know, to me, it takes a little bit more than just that. I feel like it takes anger, you know, and it takes seeing them really and to see the people who are angry at you and to let them have their voice at you felt really powerful. And to have, you know, to have something like was done, what they call the reconciliation with uh, with this kind of a um, awareness of of white privilege and how that's affecting people, I think would be an interesting and important day. Well, before I formally start to practice, I'm just going to say that uh, in terms of growing in all the ways that we uh, need to grow, I think the most important thing for all of us is to be open. And... Um, and have humility about what we think we know. Whenever I thought I had things figured out, uh, that was when I usually started to come into conflict um, with the world, probably with myself too. So I'm grateful for the idea that uh, spiritual practice doesn't have a, an end point uh, because everything is impermanent. So every end point is another beginning point. So just sitting, standing, lying down or walking comfortably with ease. The voices we've heard today could have come from one person. Each of us has so many voices in our minds. It's a gift, an enormous gift to, to be able to listen and to be able to speak, to be together. To be able to disagree and still be in harmony. Many of us have come to understand our addiction as a gift, our condition as something that forced us to grow in ways that we might never have done.
So maybe we, the losers of the world, have uh, actually been the winners. We've had to learn to love ourselves, to survive. And in learning to love ourselves, we have learned to love others, to forgive others. May we continue to be ready to hear the truth, to be touched, continue to willing, be willing to give of ourselves. To share our best understanding in this moment. May we find the joy of being together, of being connected with each other, being connected with ourselves. May all beings be free from the suffering of all forms of addiction. for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast through whatever you are listening to it through, whether it's Spotify or iTunes, Stitcher. Subscribe so you know when a new episode comes out. If you have any upcoming Buddhist recovery events or suggestions for the podcast, send them to contact at BuddhistRecovery.org. April 7th is our next Academy Join us for a live Dharma teaching with Q&A after with Mary Stankovich. You can log in through your phone or laptop or tablet. It's super easy. Just click the Zoom link, which you can find at BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash academy. Again, that's going to be April 7th on a Sunday. Put it on your calendar. Hope to see you there. Bye.